All right, so first time speaking at a new church, and I draw one of the most dense passages in the entire New Testament to talk to you about, which is both a privilege and a thing of some intimidation. Uh, nevertheless, we're going to dive right in, and I'm actually grateful that we can, we can talk about this passage, because this is, I think, one of the most awesome passages and one of the most awesome books in the entire Bible. Our church is going to spend a season of time now, uh, beginning last week, going through this week, and continuing over the next several months, in which we're going to be walking through the Gospel of John, reflecting upon it, studying it, learning what we can from it. And the first 18 verses, which is what we uh, read last week and read again today, form a sort of a prologue or an introduction to, to John's Gospel, to what John is trying to do. Now, when you think about the Gospels, uh, you think about, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? And you read them, it doesn't take very long after reading them before you realize that there are ways in which John is different from the other three. John's genre is a bit different. John's purposes are a bit different. John's content is, is a bit different. And this diff these differences are so uh, pronounced that Bible commentators, when they write about these things, when they think about it, when they reflect upon it, classify Matthew, Mark, and Luke as what they call the synoptic Gospels, and then they hold John a bit apart from the other three. When they say synoptic, uh, the word synoptic means same. And what they mean about that is that they've observed through reading, through reflection, that if, if you find a story in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, Right, you find a, a description of an incident, you find a parable, you find something like that. You look at that, and there is a 75% chance that you're going to see an account of the same incident in, in one of the other two. All right? So if Matthew has a story, there's a 75% chance that, that story appears also in Mark or Luke. If you do the same thing and you compare it instead of Mark or Luke, if you compared it to, say, the Gospel of John, you would find there's only a 25% chance that the same incident is recorded in the Gospel of John. John is working with different material. He doesn't have as many parables. He has many, many more conversations, many more accounts of, of Jesus meeting with individuals, with small groups of individuals, and many more detailed reflections upon what Jesus says to them. The, the incident with Nicodemus, for instance, is in, in the Gospel of John, an account of a conversation he had. Uh, there's, a, there's a very detailed account of what Jesus said to his disciples on the last night that he was, he was here on earth before he went to the cross. That doesn't appear in any of the other three. And so because of that, and because the, the Gospel of John in some ways is more kind of uh, mystic maybe than the other three, some people have advised avoiding it. I had one pastor who, uh, you know, one of the questions you get a lot when you're a pastor is, well, I'm just a new Christian. What should I read? Which one of the four Gospels should I read first? And I had a pastor who said, oh, you have to read Mark. Don't pay any attention to the other three. Mark is the simplest. You're going to get through Mark quickest. You'll understand it the easiest. That's definitely the one. Don't read John, whatever you do. All right, that's what he, what he would say to people. I had another pastor, though, my childhood pastor, maybe the one who influenced me the most, who said, you should actually start with John. If you're a brand new Christian and you're coming in, you've never read any of the Gospels before, start with that one. Because, he said, that is the one that will let you see who Jesus was, the clearest of all the four. And, and this is one of the points that John himself makes over and over and over again, is that when you see who Jesus is, when you see how he interacts with people, when you see how he feels about people, when you see what he does, when you see the miracles, when you see the conversations, when you see at the climax of the gospel as he lays down his life. Of course, some of that is in all four, but when you see Jesus in John, you see the Father most clearly. In fact, Jesus even suggested, right, that when you've seen him, you've seen the Father. 
And you see him, I want to suggest to you, most clearly in the Gospel of John. So as we think about these things, as we begin this period of time in the life of our church when we're going to walk through the Gospel of John, we're going to focus especially this week on the prologue, the first 18 verses. And there are three things that I think that we should notice about the prologue. You may laugh at me. Three things, Matt. Why three? It's because I'm a lawyer and I organize information for a living and I just can't help myself. (laughs) I want you to see the universe's story reimagined. First thing. The second thing I want you to see is a totally unexpected plot twist in that story. And then the last thing I want you to see is a suggestion about how we ought to live in light of that unexpected plot twist. The universe's story reimagined, a totally unexpected plot twist in the middle of that story, and then a suggestion about how we ought to live in light of that unexpected plot twist. So how does John start? Drew pointed this out in his sermon last week, right? John doesn't begin with an account of Jesus' birth like Matthew and Luke do. He doesn't throw in there an account of Jesus' genealogy or his human ancestry, again, like Matthew and Luke do. He doesn't even necessarily begin abruptly like Mark does. How does he begin? What are the first three words? Well, in the beginning, right? Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He doesn't just start with birth, he goes back even further, and he uses words which, as Drew pointed out last week, are designed deliberately to reflect another passage of Scripture that begins in the beginning, right? And that passage of Scripture is Genesis chapter 1. And so John is intentionally encouraging us to think about what he's about to say and to think about it at some level in parallel with what what the Jews all understood to be their origins and beginning in Genesis chapter 1. He's inviting us, John is, to contrast the narrative that he's about to give with the narrative that appeared in Genesis chapter 1. And so to understand what he's getting at, you have to think a little bit about what that narrative in Genesis chapter 1 was like, and then think about how it's the same and how it's quite different than the narrative that John is about to begin to explain. Think about that narrative in Genesis chapter 1. What is that about? Well, it's about creation, right? God creating, God creating light, then God creating things then God creating life, and then at the climax of the Genesis chapter 1 narrative, God creates mankind, right? He creates Adam, he creates Eve, and he does this through his word, through speaking. And we know that God made all of those things, and then he called those things good, and yet less than three chapters into the narrative, everything steers horribly, horribly off track. Mankind breaks God's creation. Mankind rebels against God and, and, and doesn't want to listen to him, doesn't want to be in fellowship with him, doesn't want to obey him. And the next 10 or 12 chapters of the book of Genesis is a story of God's creation gone horribly off track and progressively degenerating, right? And so you see, and we could examine all this in detail, you, you see that, that different aspects of God's creation spin off track. very quickly in this narrative, right? Family spins off track. Instead of one man and one woman, you've got a man with multiple wives very, very early on. You've got family disrupted as brothers murder one another, right? Not God's intention. The arts go off track as God, as, you know, God created the arts to glorify him, to glorify the world, and, and man begins to use that for his own purposes and ends. And things just go horribly, horribly wrong, The flesh that God made, mankind, destroys everything that it touches, and unfortunately, in many ways, that narrative continues down to this day. 
when we look around us and think about the, the awfulness, the injustice, the poverty, the hate, the war, the violence, the destruction, the inequality that fills the world around us. It, it's a narrative that in many ways has just gone terribly, terribly off track. Now, John starts at the exact same place, right, in his narrative. They both start with that phrase, in the beginning. But John's story, John is going to take the narrative off in a completely different direction. The only thing that I can think to compare this to, as I reflected upon this, and to compare great things with perhaps very slightly less great things, it reminded me of things from the Lord of the Rings movies. All right, so bear with me here. I'm a, I'm a little bit of a geek. Perhaps you are, too. Think about this. You'll remember that at the end of the very first Lord of the Rings movie, right, towards the end, there's this scene where the uh, Frodo and, and his buddies are fighting the Balrog, right? It's that big kind of demon-like thing that they're there on the bridge, right? And they're all running away, and, and Gandalf is going to kind of give himself up so that the rest of the party can get away, right? So they're scurrying, you know, off somewhere, and Balrog, uh, Balrog's there, Gandalf is there, and he's just very dramatically screams, like, thou shalt not pass, or something like that. And um, so he gets into this fight with the Balrog, kind of kills him, but the tail comes up, remember, and pulls him off, and he flies down into the pit. That's the last that Frodo sees of him. And the next scenes in the movie are horrible tragedy, right? Frodo's crying, Sam's crying. They're all really, really sad because of Gandalf, and then they go off. That's the last you see of Gandalf in that installment, right? But then at the beginning of the second movie, if you remember, the second movie opens with the exact same scene, right? It opens with, the, with, a, with a, again, a cut of the scene from the first movie where Gandalf and the Balrog are fighting. But this time, instead of following the party out and seeing them cry, you see the rest of the narrative, right? You see what's going on that maybe you don't see uh, when, you, when you're just watching the first movie. You see that, that after he falls off the bridge, they keep falling, they keep fighting, and then you see that, that, that Gandalf actually ends up resurrecting, right? The, the Valar send him back. He comes back to life, and, and then eventually he's going he's gonna to rejoin the party. So in the second movie, you start from the exact same spot, right? You start even with the exact same scene, but the narrative, you see things that you don't see before, and the narrative goes off in a completely different direction. It goes off in a direction that leads you to think that there might actually be hope, that even in the midst of the tragedy, things might actually turn out okay. And so John, I think, is starting in the same spot, but rather than a narrative of tragedy, he's going to show you how God is going to, is going to take this narrative and he's going to redeem it. He's going to send it off in a completely different direction. There's a promise that darkness is not actually going to prevail. It's not actually going to have the last word. And just as in the first narrative, the climax of the narrative is, is the appearance of, of, of flesh, right? The appearance of a man. In this narrative that John gives us, the climax of the narrative, the climax of the story is once again the appearance of a man. Down in verse 14, which forms the intellectual emotional, theological heart of this prologue. But unlike the first man who caused the narrative to spin into tragedy, the man that appears in John's narrative, the second Adam, as the Bible later refers to him, that man is not going to cause the narrative. He's actually going to redeem the tragedy. He's going to take what was tragic and broken, and he's going to unbreak it. He's going to make it better. He's going to restore everything. And he's going to succeed in every way 
that Israel failed and in every way that the first man failed. Jesus Christ, there in verse 14, that's the climax. Okay, the first thing is to see that John's narrative is going in a consistent but different direction than the original narrative. And it starts out then with, with, this, with this twist that's in verse 14. Now let's read verse 14 again because it, it forms so much the theological, emotional, intellectual heart of what's happening. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the climax, right? The word became flesh. We refer to this as the incarnation, right? That's the thing that we're remembering and celebrating, especially during, during this Christmas season of the year. God himself, in a mystery, becoming tangible, becoming physical, God himself coming into his creation to change the narrative, coming into his creation to rescue it. Uh, this is a mystery, right, that Jesus himself would become a vulnerable little baby crying in a manger. There's a sense of deep union here, right, that God would become one of us. Reflect on that. Emmanuel, God with us. God is one of us. God experiencing everything that we experience, right, experiencing all the, the brokenness that's, that surrounds us in creation, experiencing all the sorrow and sadness, um, experiencing family life, right? Experiencing social life, experiencing professional life, working as a as a carpenter, um, experiencing ministry. Every experience that we have, he's coming himself to experience. But whereas the first Adam brought death, the second Adam, Jesus, is going to bring life. God is acting in His creation in a new way, and He's coming to rescue it. So he becomes flesh, right? And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. One of the challenges, I think, in reading the Gospels is that oftentimes the writers of the Gospels will use terms that have a cultural meaning maybe to the people who were originally hearing what, what the writers were saying or to the people who were originally there when, when Jesus was talking. They mean something to them that where maybe the cultural meaning kind of flies over our heads somehow, or we don't quite get it. For example, just to, just to give a random example, the term house is a loaded cultural term to a, to a Jewish person in the first century A.D. because when they think house, they think temple. They think Yahweh's house. That was the main house that was at the center of their religious, civic, and political life. Uh, the center of everything, right, that they did, going up to the temple, making the sacrifices, the priests were there. That was a very important thing. So when they say, when they hear house, they, they naturally, their mind goes into Yahweh's house, temple, in a way that maybe our mind doesn't exactly go. And so you can see then when Jesus later on in, uh, tells a story about a wise man building his house on a rock, but a foolish man building his house on the sand. And at the end of his story, when the foolish man's house goes splat, right, as the song tells us. Anybody know the song? Some of you know the song. When the foolish man's house goes splat, you can see where that is like culturally loaded to them in a way that maybe we don't immediately notice, right? He's suggesting that if they don't get 
behind him in the way that God wants them to do that the temple is going to be destroyed, right? The house is going to go splat. That's a meaning that would just fly over our heads when we're removed in some way from the cultural context in which it's heard. It's a loaded term. One of the things that I try to do when I, when I read the Gospels is look for the, look for the loaded terms that maybe have a cultural resonance to them that do, is not immediately apparent to us. And I think that there are a couple of those loaded terms here in verse 14. Um, so when, when verse 14 says that, that, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? This word dwelt is a very, very interesting word. Um, I, I think that you can overload your sermons with Greek, and I'm not going to do that, but the Greek word here is actually important. The word is skenoo. The word skene, which is related to the word skenoo, means tent. And so the word skenoo actually means literally to pitch a tent, or to live in a tent, right? So the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. Now, that's an interesting image, right? It, it suggests a certain, uh, certain presence and intimacy maybe that the word dwelt doesn't have. But even more than that, when you think of, of tent, when you think of God living in a tent, what do you think of? You think of the tabernacle, Right? You think, and and you remember this, right, in the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, in there in in the Pentateuch, that before the temple was built, God gave the Israelites, like, specifications for a certain tent structure they were supposed to to build, that they built, called the tabernacle, and that that structure was where God's glory dwelled, right? There's an account of God's glory, you know, filling the tabernacle, and then being with them as they wandered through the desert and came into the promised land. And that was an image that they cherished, that they, that they, that they loved, right? That was part of their, their national identity. We are God's people, and we know that we're God's people, they said to themselves, because he's with us, because his glory is with us in the tabernacle. And then later, of course, after Solomon built the, the, the building, the structure, later in the temple, and, and, and so, you know, skenoo is a loaded term. And then, of course, and I, I was using it, right? I was talking about God's glory filling it, which was a cherished thing, a cherished memory for them. And then it, it's no coincidence, I suggest to you, that immediately after he talks about the, the, the dwelling, we beheld his glory. We beheld his glory, the glory that filled the tabernacle. And God, John is using that term glory, which brings up these associations. That's amazing. The problem, though, and this, this, is, this comes out a little bit in the Ezekiel passages that we read earlier in the service, the problem was that God's glory had left, and they knew it. Remember that the Israelites, and this is an important part of their cultural, religious, and national narrative, remember that they had gone into exile. There had come a time when they rebelled against God, when they rebelled against you know, their Lord, and although God pled with them and pled with them, repent, 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 you're not, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. You're not being my people. You're not discharging my mission in the way that I, that I wanted and hoped and planned for you to. There came a time, and there's a vision in Ezekiel chapter 10, which we, which we didn't read, but Ezekiel alluded to it in the passage we did read. There came a time when God's glory left. Ezekiel had this vision of God's glory lifting up from the temple and taken off to the east. And that made them very sad. They knew that there was a sense in which God's glory had left. Now, at the same time, they had this wonderful promise that we did read 
in Ezekiel uh, 40, 40, whatever it was, that we, 43, that we, that we read earlier, Ezekiel had this amazing vision that God's glory was going to come back. He actually saw it coming back the same way that it left, in this, in this sort of cloud of, of light that comes from the east. And then as we read, he, he saw it. He saw that it, that it came from the east and that it re-inhabited the temple. And that that promise was associated with the promise that when that happened, when God's glory returned to his people, that it would never leave again. That was the last verse of that passage, right? I will dwell with, with them forever, and they'll put away all of the sins that they had previously committed. I'm going to put away their sins, I'm going to forgive their sins, and I'm going to dwell with them forever. And these two things are associated together. That was a hope that they had. And the thing is, even though they had physically returned from exile, right, the Babylonian captivity ended, they came back, they were there in the land at the time that, that, that all these events were taking place, nobody ever claimed to have had a vision that the glory actually returned to the temple. Nobody ever claimed to see that prophecy fulfilled. Nobody ever claimed that it happened. I, I just get the sense sometimes reading that in some ways the Pharisees and some of the religious establishment was in denial about this, right? They had the temple. They were all like all about it, but nobody ever claimed to have seen the glory come back. And at some deep level, they knew that, that this promise had yet to be fulfilled. They were looking for the way that that promise would be fulfilled. And the totally unexpected plot twist in this narrative, the thing that nobody ever thought would happen, that this promise was fulfilled in a totally unexpected way. John suggests that this promise was fulfilled when the incarnation took place, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory's there again. We're seeing his glory. And John suggests that finally, after the long years uh, uh, of exile, the long years of God's absence, that finally, once again, God is present. Emmanuel, God with us. The glory has come back. But nobody thought that it was going to come back, not in the form of a cloud of light, but it was going to come back in the form of a person. It was going to come back through the incarnation. And we know, we know, we know from Ezekiel we know that when, when God's glory comes back, that Israel's sins were going to be forgiven and that it was never going to leave again. Nobody thought that it would happen that way. Nobody thought that it would happen in the form of a person. <laughs> Still less, I think, that it would happen in the form of a person who would come not as a reigning king, but would come and and ultimately be beaten, tortured, and executed as a criminal among criminals, and then raised from the dead. What a twist in the narrative. What a twist in the, in the plot. So you see, you see the, the reimagining of the narrative of the universe. You see the reimagining of Israel's narrative. You see the unexpected twist that when this prophecy is fulfilled, that when the glory returns, that when God comes back, it's not in the form of a cloud, it's in the form of a person. And then, lastly, you see a suggestion about the way we ought to live in light of this unexpected plot twist. A couple of thoughts about this. One is, is this. One of the great things about the glory returning, 
And, the, and you see this over and over again in the different prophecies in the Old Testament. You see it over and over again in the Psalms. Is that when the glory returned, when God finally forgave Israel's sins, when the exile ended, when God did for Israel what he was promising that he was going to do for Israel, that it would allow Israel to finally be Israel. That it would allow Israel finally to fulfill the mission that God had in mind for it. And this is the thing, is that oftentimes, especially when I was younger, when I would read the Old, Old Testament, I would think to myself, well, God just likes Israel better than he likes everybody else. And so that's why he, he picked Israel, and, and they're just, they're better, and I, gosh, I wish I was Jewish, because that means I could also be better, you know, and God would like me better than everybody else. I think that's a mistake to read the narrative that way. The point of Israel wasn't to pick out somebody to, to, to have God's favoritism shed upon them. The point of Israel, if you look at the sweep of the narrative, was, was that God was picking out a people through whom he was going to rescue the entire earth. When Israel you know, was acting as Israel, you saw little pieces or glimpses of that in the Old Testament, right? When Israel was, was walking correctly, you see things like God, you know, God's testimony being given to the Queen of Sheba. You see the nations around seeing it a little bit. But when God allowed Israel really to be Israel, the point is that the world was going to be healed. And that means that when God did for Israel what God promised to do for Israel, when God ended Israel's exile, when the glory returned to the temple, that it wasn't going to be just for Israel. It was going to mean that all the Gentiles would be able to come in too, finally. Just like God said to Abraham, right, through you all the peoples on the earth will be blessed. He was thinking of you. And that's why, and when you see other hints of this in the Old Testament, you see it, in, for example, in the psalm that we read today that had all those funny words in the middle. Right? What's going on in that psalm? He's talking about the temple. He's talking about you know, Zion, the place where God's glory is. And he's saying all of these people that would be prohibited from entering the temple under the strict interpretation of the Old Testament law, all of these people, not only are they going to be in the temple, they're going to be born there. All the Philistines who were my enemies, born there. All, you know, all the people from Tyre, also my enemies, born there. And the, the, the psalm actually pictures God at the end pointing at every nation group, kind of filling out a list or something, like registering them and saying, yep, born in Zion. They're all going to be part of his people, right? And that's associated with the, with the temple operating, right, with God's glory being in the temple. Glorious things are you are spoken, Zion city of our God, right? It's all coming together. And has come together in the person of Jesus who now allows us to be God's people. How would this happen? Well, there's a phrase that's repeated over and over again, right? Well, well, over and over, twice, but it's an important phrase, right? At the end of verse 14, uh, full of grace and truth. And again, he uses the same phrase in the middle of verse 17, right? The law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What do those terms mean? Grace means God's undeserved kindness, right? I learned that in Awana when I was a kid. Uh, some of you know what that is. And then truth, right? Well, what's the truth? The truth is that we've made a wreck of the, of the world and that God is justly angry about the mess that we have made of his creation, right? And somehow, through this incarnation, grace and truth are going to come together. You know, it's funny. I worked as a, as, a, as, a, as a pastor for a while, so I was a lawyer, then I was a pastor, then I, now I'm a lawyer again. People say to me, well gosh, it must be really, really hard. How could you go back and forth from being those two things? And I said, don't worry, the skills are totally transferable. Both of them involve, at some level, interpreting a text and then kindly telling people things that they don't actually want to hear, right? <laughs> True. <laughs> and I did totally the same thing. Um, 
but, and, and the truth that we may not want to hear is that we've made a, tr a train wreck of the world and, and that we've broken God's creation. He's, he's unhappy about that. Grace and truth, grace and truth. How do those things meet? Well, the only place where grace and truth meet is on the cross. The only place where all of grace and all of truth come together. The grace of God's kindness for us in giving himself for us and the truth that the world is a broken place and that God needs to, to do something to judge that brokenness. And the thing that he's going to do is absorb the pain of all of that brokenness into himself so that we don't have to absorb it. Grace and truth, full of grace and truth, the incarnation full of grace and truth, leading, meeting, inevitably, the only place there at the cross as he's hanging and suffering. One last thought, and that's this. Of course, after all of that suffering, after the place where grace and truth meet, the resurrection takes place, and with the resurrection, the dawn of a new era. We talked a lot about the temple. Remember that the temple, that Jesus would, would in John chapter 2, associate the temple with his body, right? Remember that whole conversation they had, made everybody so mad? destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it. Everybody's freaking out, they're confused, but John writes in John chapter 2 that later the disciples realized that he was speaking about the temple of his body, right? Remember that? He associates his body with the temple, and that makes sense, right? Because the temple is the place where heaven and earth meet, where God is in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, the temple in the Gospels is the place where heaven and earth meet is Jesus, right? That's part of the point of the incarnation, right? God, man, they meet the temple of his body. That makes sense. And that's part of John's point, too, that Jesus had a real body and that he was both man and God. The early church, we know, in the Ephesians passage that we read, quickly came to associate the concept of the temple with the concept of the, of the church, right? That's why we read things in that, like, like in that Ephesians passage where, where Paul speaks about the church being built into a holy temple, right? And then in other passages in Paul where, where Paul speaks about your body being the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you see how that makes a, a lot of sense? Because if the temple in the Old Testament was the place where God's glory was, was the place where heaven and earth met, the temple in the New Testament as Jesus' body and then Jesus' body as the church, all that fits together. Now the place where heaven and earth meet is you. Now the place where God's glory dwells is you as you're filled with the Holy Spirit. God's glory is now inside of you. It's no longer in a building temple. It's no longer in a, a structure. It's inside of you. And so as Jesus became incarnate, right, as Jesus was the spot where heaven and earth met, now you're incarnate in, the, in this sense, not that you're God, but in the sense that you are sent out into different places. You are sent out into different vocations. We all have different things that we do that God has called us to as part of our life. So my calling is the, is the practice of law. We have in here artists. We have financial advisors. We have moms who stay at home. We have students. We have teachers. We have social workers. We have a million different, different sorts of things. And each of those places where God sends you, it's a little bit like heaven and earth meet through you. 
that redemption of those places at some level happens through you as God works through you to bring healing to his creation through you as his glory inhabits you. You are entempled, each of you, in your work, in your home, in your classroom. And that's part of the story, right? If Jesus left the ivory palaces, as the psalm tells us, as the old hymn tells us, out of the ivory palaces into a world of woe, only as great eternal love made my Savior go, right? If that was part of, of, of Jesus' vocation, then Jesus' love also sends us out of our comfort into our vocations, into the places where, he's, where he wants us to go to bring his healing. So as Jesus lived incarnationally, so also you do. You reflect his glory, his love, and his mission wherever you go. And in doing so, you anticipate the final fulfillment of the world that he has promised when all of the whole creation is filled with the glory of God, right? You anticipate that just a little way right now as the glory of the Holy Spirit inside of you fills these spots where you go. One Bible commentator put it this way. He said that the gospel of John reveals that the body of Jesus, his incarnated person, is at the heart of the mystical life and of a new knowledge of God. This life is not a flight from the world of pain and matter, which is what the Gnostics, who were, who were you know, kind of combated with John, supposed. It's not a flight from the world of pain and matter, but it's a mission into it to love people as Jesus loves them. That is your calling. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now he dwells inside of us. Be the church. Be the temple. Be grace and truth in the places where God sends you. Be, be the incarnation. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.